it's what I call the sort of um, emergency planners paradox. You know, you don't want there to be incidents. It, you know, that we work day in day out trying to to reduce the impact and likelihood of them. But actually, the learning that you get when they happen is really, really valuable. And it's something that we as a team are really keen on at the moment is making sure that we capture that learning and that it's built into sort of future planning, not just our own learning, but what's happening around the country, overseas, uh, because it's all, it's all relevant. It can all help us improve. Hi, and welcome to the fifth episode of the Business Continuity Podcast. Last time, we looked at the plans and testing exercises used by our continuity experts to account for and mitigate against the consequences of disruption. Today, we're going to look at what happens when those plans collide against reality. This episode is about big disasters, their effects and the positives, if any, that can come out of them. The title of the last episode is pretty relevant to this one. Plans are useless, planning is everything. That obviously comes with a caveat here, plans are certainly useful. But the process of planning, and by extension rehearsing those plans, is the second best way to measure your organisational resilience against disruption. The best way, unfortunately, is to experience a disaster firsthand. The trouble with that, as we'll go on to find out, is that the biggest disasters resist planning. They're inherently unpredictable and unknowable. The best you can do, according to Vicky Gavin, is to put good crisis management practices in place and do your best to follow them. You get here in the news all the time predicting the next black swan event. What's going to be? Okay, first of all, definition of a black swan event. A catastrophic, unexpected event. Unexpected. If it's unexpected, you can't expect it. So if you expect it, it's not a black swan event. Uh, The whole thing, it's just a nonsense. What you can do is be ready to respond. So we know bad things are going to happen. If you've got good impact-based plans and practiced crisis management in place, you're ready to respond to any event, any time. You don't have to guess what it's going to be. You don't have to waste that time and energy creating an encyclopedic set of plans that nobody's going to read. Uh, Because that's the one thing I can guarantee. If you've got that encyclopedic set of plans, when you have an incident, it's not going to be in there. It will be something different because the stuff that you've figured out and planned for you're not, is not going to be a crisis. So some good advice right at the top of the episode. Actual disasters seldom fit the plans written for them. Even where the situation looks identical to the provision scenario written down on paper, even simple events present too many variables in practice to sleepwalk through the recovery. Deviation is almost inevitable. That's why BC and DR can struggle to justify themselves in coldly financial terms. Measuring the ROI of continuity planning is difficult enough without the acknowledgement that the plans you've invested in probably won't be completely watertight when it's time to use them. Well, the return on investment is all to do with the probability of an event happening, isn't it? So, uh, you know, are they really going to take that sort of decision? It costs a million. Is it going to, if it saves my company a billion pounds, because it's a billion pound company, am I going to invest a million pounds in it? Uh, you know, is the chance one in a thousand the something's going to happen? Sure. That's, I mean, but you know, you're dealing with uh, low probability events, so you don't really know. It's like insurance. What's the return on investment in insurance? You know, it's, it's absolutely zero if you never have an incident. Now, on the other hand, resiliency doesn't always come from traditional planning. It's entirely possible to put resilient practices in place without ever spending a penny or even formalizing them into a plan. 
Mel had a good example of a small business last Christmas that was able to survive terrible flooding, not because they had a specific flood plan, but because they built resilience into their operational model. This is a testament to intuitive business continuity, albeit at a small scale. I'll give you a, um, a little story here that happened very recently. I, I live up in the, on the edge of the Lake District in Kendall, and you may or may not know that Kendall suffered really badly from floods just before Christmas. Some friends of ours run a specialised printing business. They employ about 10 people, but they do an awful lot of sign printing, essentially signs. And their uh, premises was totally flooded out. And they have managed to continue uh, and are up and running again. And in terms of business continuity, they're an absolute success. But if I'd have said business continuity to them, especially before the floods, they'd have said, what? What's that? They'd actually got in place the main elements of business continuity. They had their data backed up in the cloud. In fact, their systems were all cloud-based, actually. And they managed, or they did have in place, alternative means of communications. And when their premises were flooded, they could continue to work from home, as in terms of running the business, and they could continue to contact all their customers. And they managed to contact them all and uh, explain what was happening and tell them the alternative arrangements they were going to make. And, you know, that's business continuity in action. But uh, they would never have passed an audit of ISO 27,000 and whatever. <laughs> Disruption is always relative to the party in question, and the same disaster would be experienced very differently by different organisations. That's not just to say that some are more prepared than others, although that's definitely true, but also that disasters are fundamentally personal experiences. Even for organisations experiencing disruption that's ostensibly within the realm of their expertise, there's always scope for the unexpected. Take flooding. I'm sure it won't be a surprise to learn that flooding is an extremely common use case for DR and BC planning in the UK. But even an organisation like Associated British Ports, a company that own and operate 21 ports around the UK, and for whom I imagine flooding is pretty high on the continuity planning agenda, were taken by surprise during the mega flood of 2013. John Robinson took me through the circumstances leading up to the disaster and the immense impact it had on UK national critical infrastructure. So part of what I do is I work, guys were talking to were Associated British Ports. Mm. On December the 5th, 2013, there was a phenomenal low pressure system passing to the north of the UK, as they do regularly, uh, except this one turned right down the North Sea and made its way down the eastern seaboard. Um, something they don't often do, and it was a very low low pressure. Not the worst by any stretch, but pretty low. The effect of a low pressure system is to suck up a bubble of water, uh, which obviously drains it from the space around the sides, and as it moves down the coast, it raises water levels at high tide particularly. Well, this coincided with a spring tide, which is a, an especially high tide. Um, so. It wasn't initially predicted to hit the Humber ports particularly hard. It was going to be Cleethorpes and further down. In fact, they're unpredictable. They're chaotic in their behaviour, so you can't guarantee where they're going to go. Little movements here and there, you've got no control. Uh, so as evening approached, uh, the tide went out. <laughs> it carried on going out and out and out, and you could see the bottom of the lock gates, which haven't been seen since they were fitted. And that's a bit of a warning sign. And then it came in, and it came in, obviously it's tidal, so it doesn't stay in forever. It comes in, it goes over the top of the lock gates, it then goes over the top of the copings, which are the, the defences for the port. And when you bear in mind this port at Immingham, 
and you've also got Hull and you've got uh, Grimsby and Goole further up. These ports are responsible for a, a huge percentage of the UK uh, gross national product. They also supply Drax Power Station with biomass, they have a fuel terminal, they have um, coal terminals, fertiliser terminals, these are whole industrial complexes, the port's over 300 acres. Uh, I went for a tour, took my boots, thinking we'd walk, took two and a half hours in car, by a car to drive around this port. It's enormous. And when you think that was flooded pretty much completely to a depth in excess of one meter, all the manhole covers get blown out so you can't walk anywhere because you can't see anything. There's chemicals, there's bits floating around, lethal place. You can't really move once it's like that. So you shut a port. So you've closed down 300 businesses, 4,000 people can't get into work, um, and you've cut off your fuel supply to one of your primary power stations. And we're quite close to the edge in terms of power in this country. And it's winter. Well, that, that affects the whole of UK PLC. And when you see, I think the penny drops when you realise the cascade of effect that comes out of an, in, an incident like that. So why was an incident of this scale largely unreported? Well, as it turns out, there was one more, admittedly tragic step in the chaotic series of events leading up to the flood that defined the outcome of the entire disaster. Why does no one know about this? The reason no one knows about it is that Nelson Mandela died earlier that day and you couldn't get time on the airwaves for anything else. So fortunately for the ports, uh, the media were preoccupied and for two or three days after that they stayed preoccupied to the point where even when ABP tried to get messages into the media they couldn't. Managing external communication can profoundly impact the potential damage disasters can have. Beyond the initial disruption to production, organisations stand to incur huge reputational damage in the eyes of both existing customers and the wider public, the effects of which are long-lasting and can very often do more harm to the longevity of the business than the disaster itself. We'll return to talk about how to manage disaster communication a little later on. But for now, what about something less predictable? John described the flood as fundamentally chaotic, susceptible to little movements here and there that drastically affected the outcome. Michael Faber told me an incredible story that illustrates how a string of seemingly unconnected factors can combine to render scenario-based planning almost completely futile. An interesting one um, is something which I called the suet pudding incident, and, and it was a, um, an investment bank that I was working for. And this is, I think, probably coming back a little bit to what I was saying about not writing plans about any given scenario um, because there's a very technical thing which you might call Sod's Law or Murphy's Law and what it tends to do is it, it, it changes the shape of what you expected um, an event to be. So we um, we had actually designed and built a new building um, in, in the city of London, a beautiful building and we had a staff restaurant and um, there were two ovens um, one was a meat oven and, and one was a, a, um, a sort of a bread type oven. The meat oven was cleaned out very regularly. Uh, the bread oven, because it was assumed that there wasn't much fat or anything like that used in the cooking, that, they, that they, they, they didn't need to do it. But 
things like suet pudding and such like do actually cause fat um, uh, to go. So if you know from the kitchen at home where you might have a blockage that it's because um, you, you didn't clean out the fat first before you cleaned out the pan or whatever it was. So there was a blockage in the pipe and uh, maintenance people came up and went to clear the blockage. And it was, I mean, I've got a, a picture if you ever want to see it, but, but uh, I mean, it was solid, thick um, fat that was built up in this pipe, not, not very pleasant. So when they went to sort of try and push this out to clear it, Further down the chain, which was in, in uh, one of the basement areas, a join in, in the pipe just came away ever so slightly. A couple of drips of water came out of that, and Sod's Law says that there's a power breaker below that that's not fully protected. It dripped on there, caused some sparks and some smoke. Um, in that area, down in the basement, we had a data centre. The air conditioning from the data center pulled in the smoke into the, 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 the room, um, caused all the alarms to go off in the building, which meant everybody evacuated. And because this was a trading environment, that meant people were out of action for whatever period of time we were out in the street and therefore we lost money as a result. And then um, to the, the, the um, um, gas protection system within the computer room, all came out within as it was supposed to do, and it cost £30,000 just to fill up the re refill the gas. Wow. Now, can we write a plan about that? Absolutely not. And that is exactly why scenario based planning can never be truly comprehensive. So, to jump back to communications for a moment, John Robinson regards communication structures as paramount in reducing disruption both internally and externally. I think the, the communication generally is probably one of the most important aspects of any any continuity plan. It, it tends to be underplayed in favour of practicality, whereas if you think about it, making one phone call could buy you three days just by saying, we can't make it, we've got a problem, please live with us. And they'll go, yeah, sure. If you tell them nothing and the first thing they hear is on the TV about chaos because that's what the media does, they're going to take a much different view and they're going to start to put you under a lot more pressure. So this communication, having a communication system that runs right the way down from your staff to their families, up through the organisation, uh, through to tiers of management, uh, out to other suppliers, uh, up through uh, senior management to maybe a strategic team and then a crisis team, and a single source of information that goes out, many sources coming in, someone, some people sit at the hub and make sure that information is coordinated, managed, and pushed where it needs to go in the shape that it needs to be for the best effect. Doing that alone, I think it's got to be worth millions and millions in terms of relationship, in terms of um, market position, in terms of perception. It will live with you. Now, it's also important to consider circumstances where elements of communication might be outside your immediate control such as organisations using third parties to manage aspects of their social media, for instance. Stuart Dugard had a good example of that that illustrated the dangers of assumption when third-party relationships aren't factored into plans ahead of time. Um, basically, I try with uh, the scenarios that you produce and through against a strategy, you can then uh, uh, sort of identify an underlying theme on communications. 
I think uh, there's uh, quite a few companies who would outsource, say, Facebook and Twitter to a third party. And for what you can see with them, uh, those that have actually gone through uh, an instant, you can actually see that they've got a plan that goes into force. So there's one I was uh, thinking of, uh, it was a European incident, and um, as soon as the incident happened, uh, there was a, a multi-language response went up, please go to our website. The problem is, it was never tested, it was never thought through, and their website crashed because obviously it spanned multiple countries in Europe and, um, uh, you know, it's just the volume of, of people hitting the website. And it actually paralyzed, the, there was no communication going through for about two or three hours. And the only communication was this one, please go to our website, you couldn't get to the website. So it's a matter of, well, can you scale up things? Can you scale it back? And, and what is going to be the anticipated traffic? The plan was executed, it was fine, you know, we've got this problem for further information, see our website, and then the whole idea, I presume within the plan, was that it was going to be the holding place. But uh, what it actually turned out to be was that uh, it was, uh, you know, the fact that it was the stopgap. Yeah. And it actually took the parent company to, uh, well, they actually retreated a parent, the parent company uh, information, because that's the only way which they could actually get around this uh, website issue. The emergency planner's paradox is simple. Whilst testing is vital, it's synthetic. There's nothing quite like the chaos of a real disaster to put your plans through their paces. That's why it was interesting hearing about Michael Faber's experiences following perhaps one of the most significant disasters in the history of DR and BC planning. The one that prompted many London firms to create their first DR plans and led to the UK government installing the Ring of Steel, a security and surveillance cordon around the city of London. Here's Michael's story of the 1993 IRA bombing in Bishopsgate and the creation of emergency response techniques created in its wake, many of which are still used today. I guess um, two IRA bombs was probably it for me. And so, as I said, I was, I was head of IT uh, for an Italian bank in the city. Part of my role was this thing called disaster recovery, which in essence was producing some tapes, some backup tapes off-site every day, and that was pretty much it. So Friday evening, my number two was covering the evening operator shift when the building jumped in the air. Um, we, we were, our building was next door to the building that was um, uh, by the side of the truck that exploded, um, which was the largest um, bomb that had exploded in, in, in London. It took out or took in every pane of glass in the building. And apart from practical lessons like um, we, we had renter crates um, that uh, and snow shovels to put the glass in there and uh, one of the first things we found was you can't fill um, the crate more than the third full otherwise you won't be able to lift it because the glass was so heavy wow. um, and and glass was found um, around and about I cut my hand um, uh, going to get a, um, a phone for somebody six months later so what happened was myself and others together with the City of London Police and Counterterrorism were all learning on the job because none of us had experienced that before. And so things like um, cordons around the city came into play at that time. More CCTVs, um, entry points, trying to reduce traffic coming in, etc. But some of the practicalities and, and a lot and you know, the nice thing about I think business continuity if you do it smart is that it doesn't cost a lot. It doesn't have to cost a lot to, to put measures in place. 
So things like um, we, we set up a, an 0800 uh, free phone or toll-free type number, which you know now is, is, is commonplace, um, but it hadn't been done before, so that we can keep people informed. So the first thing to do is, is inform people, and, and, and by people in this case I'm talking about staff, and again often we forget about staff, funnily enough, we think about the externals, we think about our clients and customers, and our regulators if we're a regulated organisation, but the number one, the most important thing is our staff. Our staff safety, number one, keeping our staff informed uh, and keeping them confident as well. Um, that's absolutely key. So things like having an 0800 number, it costs next to nothing to, to, to rent a service for you know on a quarterly basis. And that means that staff can, so once you've initially contacted your staff, if you need to do that, dependent on whether it's out of hours or not, the next thing is that you say, right, okay, for further updates, call regularly into this 0800 number and it will provide you with information. So that, that, that's a fairly simple thing. Michael also spoke about the experiences of another bank close by who had a crisis of staff relocation during the disaster because of confusion about the bomb's location. Sometimes, where there isn't the opportunity to move employees out, the best course of action is to bring them in, to use the resources available at hand and make the best of a bad situation. There's a word that I think is in the in, in some dictionaries now, which is evacuation, which has come into play. And again, with that, that situation, what happened was that uh, a um, large Swiss bank had moved away from our building, or they still owned the building, and they moved to um, uh, another development, Broadgate development in the city. Um, but they had their, their recovery in our old, the building that I was in. They were informed via the IRA and the media that a bomb was in a particular position which was the old stock exchange by the old stock exchange and was going off in 30 minutes actually the the, the truck had been moved on and and it was actually where where our building was so the staff um, heard this information they thought they'd evacuate people towards the recovery site which was actually in line of fire so therefore this is where we we identified that um, unless you have very good and corro corroborated information, do not send your people out. Um, go to the internal core of the building, assuming there is a, an internal core, which might be um, toilets, which are typically internal with no glass, stairwells, and down into the basement. More often than not, huge and tragic events like the IRA bombings are the only time in which plans are truly tested. But they're also a time in which the public eye is focused, knowingly or not, on recovery planning. The natural curiosity that follows is incredibly fleeting, but in the wake of disasters, it might benefit continuity professionals to use that public attention in order to progress understanding of recovery practices that might one day save lives a long way in a short space of time. What you'll find, and, and what's happened with Paris and Brussels recently, um, uh, and this is, you know, it's a natural thing within people, is immediately following an event. Um, there will be tremendous interest. Almost as every second or every minute or every hour that passes, the, wrong to say, the window of opportunity, yeah. but, but, but the, the sort of thought process will diminish. And we're all the same. You know, it will, get, it will get further into the distance and then it will seem less important. Um, so, you know, we, we don't want to be sort of ambulance chasers, but... Um, there is, there are opportunities um, for for us to take, um, and and you know if 
if those are those are opportunities to take, then we should take them. Large, dramatic events like terrorist attacks often garner disproportionate attention in continuity planning because of their scale and impact on the public consciousness. And to a certain degree, that's understandable. We should prepare for those scenarios, not only to protect ourselves, but to ease public concerns. But on a practical level, the more run-of-the-mill events are both far more likely to occur and yet underrepresented in continuity planning owing to their banality. I talk about exciting and boring events. Mm. And by exciting, I don't mean nice exciting. No. Um, but if you take um, September 11th type event, if you take a large event, some of the bombs that I've been talking about, etc., there are differences between that and a boring event, which is a computer failure, power failure, gas leak. Um, and the, the, the large events, um, if there's anything positive out of it, is that often your competition within the marketplace is also taken out. Mm. So um, the need to recover quickly is reduced. We're all in the same boat and we'll all help each other and that sort of thing. However, if you take what I would call a boring event, which is, which is the thing that's, and again, far more likely to occur. So while we spend a lot of time and money focusing on the exciting events, you know, it, it's, it's maybe one in a hundred that's going to be that type of event. Mm. We've spent so much time and money on it and, and lost focus on the boring events that are far more likely to occur and far more likely to take our business out. Because, you know, we're the ones only that is out of the market then, all our competition's in there. Um, and so the need to recover and recover quickly um, is, is, is heightened. The commercial impact of disasters isn't something we've covered in much detail so far. But Michael made a good point. Downtime costs more than the minutes and hours you aren't productive. It also indirectly benefits your competitors. That said, there can be some hidden value to disruption. Worst case scenarios aren't only useful to test plans. Some organisations, upon recovering from potentially fatal events, have managed to pivot and turn their resilience into a differentiator. Now, I'm obviously not advocating businesses put themselves at risk. But in terms of silver linings, it's hard to beat. A long, long time ago, there was a, a, a company called DEC, Digital Equipment Corporation, who had a fire in Basingstoke. Uh, the, the fire was in one of their roof spaces. And bear in mind, they were a disaster recovery company offering computer disaster recovery. As to my understanding, and I, and I can't be absolutely certain of the, the facts of it, I don't recall them. I, I have heard, of the, heard them through from one of the guys who was there. Uh, it wasn't, you know, it was, an, it was an accident. It was an unfortunate accident that could have gone horribly wrong. But they turned it completely to their advantage by saying, look how brilliant our recovery was. And they wrote a case study and they published it. And you can probably still find it somewhere, I don't know. Uh, it, it transformed their position in the industry. People said, blimey, you've been through that. You've come out of it brilliantly. We've seen what you've done. We'd like some of the same, please. Yes, we'll buy your product. Creating differentiation from disruption isn't easy. But if the recovery goes well and the disruption wasn't caused by human error, your customers might find the resilience appealing. That said, it's far more likely that during a disaster, your primary concern will be survival. And whilst we've acknowledged the essentially unknowable nature of disastrous events, there is a method for quantifying the amount of disruption your organization can withstand before a full recovery is no longer possible. It's called the maximum tolerable period of downtime. There is such a thing uh, in terms of 
you know, how long can you go without suddenly becoming intolerable? Okay, so I, I do think uh, that that it exists, um, but measuring it is terribly hard. Uh, and you don't actually know when you've reached the MTPD. Um, you may recover within what you think is the MTPD, but you may find later on that, in fact, your business has been, you know, like hold beneath the water and you're sinking slowly. So it's a terribly difficult thing to measure. Um, but it, it is there as a concept. And I always use a, a simple analogy about this. If um, you're crossing the road and you look down the road and you see a bus coming and you estimate that the bus is going to get you within 10 seconds, your MTPD for crossing the road is 10 seconds. You know, you've got to cross the road before the bus comes to where you are. Um, and that's what MTPD is. It's a point at which if you go beyond, you're dead. But measuring it is very, very hard. The MTPD is on the same continuum as the Recovery Time Objective, or RTO. It's just at the other end. Now, as Mel said, calculating this with any accuracy is very difficult. Efforts will always be speculative. It can be useful to estimate in order to better inform planning, but I wouldn't rely on the back of a napkin type equations you'll need to get there. So then, the Emergency Planner's Paradox. I suppose the takeaway from this is that even with all the time and resources in the world, Pursuing continuity in absolute terms is impossible. There will always be surprises, even with events you think you've comprehensively accounted for. So, what's the solution? If you can't plan for the unknown, how can you hope to become resilient against it? Well, the short answer is practice. Staying calm throughout a crisis isn't just some innate personality trait. You can build out that automatic response by creating experiences to draw from. Practice responding to different crisis scenarios and pay attention to the processes, conversations and decision-making that happens throughout. The number of possible events themselves might be infinite, but the underlying behaviours and actions that truly influence recovery stay the same. Vicky Gavin's one piece of advice for organisations looking to improve their resilience in the next 24 hours relates directly to this. She had a really interesting analogy that illustrates the point beautifully. So just before she wraps things up for us, thanks again for listening to another episode of the BCP cast. And as I mentioned last time, if you've enjoyed the show, it's really helpful to let us know by either leaving a review on iTunes or just sending us an email to info at the bcpcast.com. So thanks again, and I'll leave you with Vicky Gavin. Wow. One thing to improve resilience immediately. I would say sit down as a team and talk about what would you do if... Um, so a lot of people will spend a lot of time and money to organize crisis exercises. They don't need to be that complicated. Yeah. If you're worrying about event X, sit down as a team and say, what if it happened? What would we do? And think about it. That'll tell you a few different, or it, it'll do a couple of different things for you. First of all, it helps you start to develop a shared risk appetite because everybody who's sitting around that table is going to be hearing what each other are saying and you will come to a consensus of what you're going to do. That's a shared risk appetite. The other thing that it does is it stores away in your brain the what to do if this happens. So the human brain is an amazing thing. And in there, we've got a little bit called the amygdala. Um, it, it's where the fight or flight reflex is. 
And essentially what it, it does is intuitive decision making. And it uses all of that information that we've seen, that we've heard, that we've, we've felt, that everything that we've ever experienced is stored in there. Not in an accessible kind of way, but in an intuitive way. And that immediate decision-making, my gut says this is what I should do, is your amygdala kicking in and saying, based on everything we know, this is the answer. The rest of your brain then gets involved and says, oh, but what about this? And what about that? And what about the other thing? So the more things that as an organization that you're, you need to have immediate responses to, that you talk through, that you work through, the more that's intuitively stored in your collective brains and the quicker and easier it's going to be to respond to them in the future. So if an organization does nothing else, if they just start talking through, what would we do if, it will put them in a significantly better place to recover. Building out an organizational amygdala. Exactly. <laughs> That's really interesting. Fantastic. Thank you very much. You're welcome.